Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unpolished MBA podcast. I'm your host, Monique Mills. And as you know, listeners are able to submit questions that I answer on episodes. And here's a question that came in about sales. It says, my startup received $2 million in funding and we're almost running out. I can't figure out how to get more sales. What do you suggest? I'm afraid we won't be able to get more money since we're not meeting our milestones. Okay, so that's a very, very common scenario. And this is a critical point for this startup because unfortunately, um, they are at a point where they won't get more funding if they don't figure this out. But I don't have enough details from that message about your industry, your product, your current sales process in place now, your marketing efforts or anything to give really, really specific insights. But what I want to do is see what you have in place and then I wanna hear and see what you're currently doing. Yeah, I have my clients do their whole sales script and process with me role playing as the prospect. Now, I usually find tons of issues and things that need to be changed, and I mean tons. And since I don't know how you're approaching sales and how you even perceive sales, I can just tell you this. Look at your sales as a process in which you're determining if there's a fit between your prospect's needs and what you're offering. It's not to persuade them to buy. Now, I know that's tough. But once you make that mental shift to seeing it that way, everything changes and you will approach these sales situations differently. Right now, you're probably approaching it with a bit of desperation because you're under stress and about to run out of money and so on. So I would say calm down, just calm down. It's not over until it's over and you still have some time to make adjustments. Now, as you know, as you're out there selling, you know, just remember people are that are at different stages of their buying journey. So you have, you know, those that are aware they have a problem and those that are aware, but they don't know a solution exists for their problem and, or they're not looking for a solution either. And then you have those that are aware and are looking for a solution. And remember that just because they are looking for a solution does not mean they are ready or willing to buy or pay the price for it um, for whatever it is that will solve their problem. And really those that are at that stage, you can get a lot of tire kickers at that stage. And I see this happen a lot with startups, a lot. And so I don't want you to spend a lot of time there, especially now. So then you have those that have, you know, looked at some solutions and they're about to make a buying decision. And I found that those bunch of people are the coolest to encounter because if you have a differentiated product from what they've seen in the market, they're typically blown away at the uniqueness in comparison to everything else they've already seen and their eyes light up. And so in reality, you really have those three types of people that you need to determine if there is a fit between their needs and what you're selling. Now, for those that are unaware of their problem, you need to help them. And you do that by sharing information that educates them. Um, Sometimes people think that things are hard because they're supposed to be or inconvenient because they're supposed to be. And once they find out, huh, 
I guess it doesn't, I guess there is an easier way to do this. So I, I think back to like using CRMs, for example, you know, some folks literally just thought, you know, they'll, they'll be using Excel spreadsheets for a while. But once people found out about different CRMs, they're like, oh, it actually doesn't have to be that difficult. People can complete a form and it's auto-populated into a database for me. So, um, you know, sometimes people are unaware and through educating them um, and sharing information, you help. Now, for those that are interested in finding a solution, those people, your job is to inspire them. So it enables them to think outside the box and see what's possible with solutions like yours. And then, you know, for those who have an intent to buy, your job is really to assure them that they're making the right decision. So my question to you is where are the people that you're speaking to, where do they fit into these three different, um, you know, positions? Where do they fit? What parts of your revenue engine do you actually even have started right now? Is your marketing up and running yet? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be elaborate at this point as, you know, as you're, as you're a startup, but it does need to be on. As uh, author Blair N says, he says, um, depending on where your people are, right, out of those three areas, you'll either need to inform them, inspire them, or reassure them. And while we're on the topic of informing them, <laughs> yes, thought leadership does play a role here. And the goal of it is to educate, not to persuade. So basically your future customers should be smarter for reading or listening to your content. And you should actually be smarter too, just from creating it. Don't let it be a bunch of fluff, okay? Um, I hope this helps a bit. And if you need more details, you know, I like to do the role playing and see what you have in place and, you know, those types of things to help fine tune where, where you're going, um, you're doing things right and doing things wrong. Um, and if you need more details, you can always reach out to me by going to tpmfocus.com and clicking on the contact us button. All right now. So we're going to hop into this episode with Brian Feroldi. And he is one of those folks that are really good at the informing them stage of the process. And he provides a lot of thought leadership. So with that, we're going to hop into the episode. Thanks. Brian, I'm really excited to have you here. I learned of you from following you on Twitter. And then I followed you over to LinkedIn and said, hey, I saw you on Twitter and you have great content. And I'm going to just connect with you here on LinkedIn where I'm most active. Cool. And so I appreciate you even responding to that. And so everyone on the Unpolished MBA podcast, I want to introduce you to Brian Feraldi. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Awesome to be here, Monique. Thanks for having me. Well, for those who are not familiar with your following on Twitter, they will be after this. Can you tell a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, I call myself a financial educator and I uh, create content that teaches people about money, personal finance, and investing. I have a particular emphasis on the third of those three, investing. And one of the things that I really love to do is explain how to invest in the stock market to people that are just starting out because the stock market is incredibly confusing and complicated, but it's something that I personally love to, to talk about and teach people about. So my job now is to create content on fill in the blank platform about uh, investing. How did you get started in that? I got started investing in 2004. That's when I graduated from college. 
I had zero education about the stock market and investing. And I say that, by the way, as someone that graduated with a business degree. <laughs> okay. So I st but I still had zero education about, uh, about investing. We learned a lot about accounting yeah. and business strategy and business law and international rules, nothing about investing or right. the stock market, which is kind of crazy. So it's something that I've learned on my own after I graduated from college. I just became interested in the subject because I got really interested in personal finance and, and money for whatever reason, the category just immediately lit me up and I've just been studying it intensely the last uh, 20 years. The way I got into becoming a financial creator was a big part of my personal financial education came through becoming a member of The Motley Fool, uh, which is an online education tool that primarily talks about individual stock investing, but they have tons of content related to money and personal finance. It was my dream 10 years ago to, to work for The Motley Fool. Seven years ago, that dream became a reality, and I became a full-time writer for them. So I was a content creator of sorts. I was just doing it specifically through The Motley Fool, who I still have a relationship with to this day. Two years ago, I started to write a book, which is called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? A big part of writing a book is you need people to be made aware that your book exists. So I started to take marketing myself seriously two years ago, primarily on Twitter. And over time, I've graduated on to other platforms and that has gone very well. And as I was building an audience for my book, I've kind of learned accidentally along the way that once you have an audience, you can actually make a living in numerous ways from doing so. So I've been a kind of full-time content creator on my own for about 18 months, but I've been creating content online for about seven years. So did your, some of your audience from the Motley Fool spill over into your audience for your personal brand with your teaching platform, your content creation? Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that helps. I, it's hard to suss out what the exact overlap is because the people that are on the Motley Fool, well, they have a pretty big audience. They are pretty niche. They're, they're hyper-focused investors that focus on individual stock selection, which is something that I personally enjoy doing. But my content nowadays is more is aimed at the general population, people that are just new to investing in general and just have no interest in buying individual businesses. And they just want to learn about the stock market. So a lot of the content that I've created on my own, I would say transcends the Motley Fool audience, but there's no doubt that there's overlap between the two. So you would consider yourself an entrepreneur right now. You do this sure. Time. Okay. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So <laughs> I'm just making it up as I go. Aren't we all? Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. And I always try to help people understand like the business model behind certain content creators. So you educate people, they start to follow you, then what? Because mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, there's a business model involved. So then yeah, you have to be, you have to find a way to create income for yourself. And I'm very much still in the figuring out the monetization method. I did, I think I did a really good job with building an audience and I've sucked at monetization, just was like terrible at it. So that's what I've been trying to learn how to do over the last six months to a year. So uh, the way that I monetize my audience today is through uh, sponsorships on my newsletter and on my YouTube channel, as well as some just basic ad revenue from those things. But six months ago, I launched my first online cohort based course where yeah. we teach people how to read financial statements. So we go line by line through the income statement, cash flow statement, balance sheet, and we teach people how to read these the same way that an analyst and an investor would. And what's cool about that is learning how to read financial statements isn't just a skill that you need to know if you're an investor. I mean, it's a skill that can help you in your entire business career. So if you're an entrepreneur, 
Learning financial statements is not an option. It's required to do so. Or if you want to move into like an executive management team at a company, learning how to read financial statements is a required skill. And from my own experience working in the business world, I would guess that 98% of business professionals are financial statement illiterate. Yes. You don't know how to read financial statements. People in accounting do. If you're the CFO, you do. But I personally know executives at publicly traded companies who don't know how to read financial statements. Uh, so where so do I they thought, pick up that skill? Exactly. Right? So, so that's, that, that is the skill that we teach people online in a cohort-based course. So it's a live, it's basically a Zoom session. And we started doing that. And that's become my number one source of income. Uh, on LinkedIn, you provide some financial statement breakdowns that really get to the ABCs of it. It really simplifies it so anyone can start to try to learn and understand the terminology and what they should be looking for in financial statements. Well, let me ask you this. How did you learn how to do that? Uh, my own interest. The best term I heard recently was everything is figure outable. You can learn anything nowadays. The tools are there and they're free. You could learn how to read financial statements in your own time by watching YouTube videos, by re reading through blogs, by digging through SEC statements. The learning part is not the hard part. The hard part is the interest. Are you interested in learning said skill? Are you capable of holding yourself accountable? And are you willing to fumble around and figure out that skill on your own? Or do you want to pay somebody that is an expert in that skill for the shortcut to kind of show you the path? So everything that we teach in our financial statement court, it's nothing is proprietary. It's all common things. Yeah. The reason people are willing to pay to do that is they want us to explain it in plain English and they want to compress what would take them a hundred hours on their own into three hours with us. Right. You have an MBA though, right? Correct. Okay. So at what point in your career did you get that? This was after I had my second kid and before we had our third kid. So at the time, the company I was working for changed their workplace policy where they said, if you get a B or better in any NBA class you take, we'll pay a hundred percent for it. And prior, it was not that generous prior to that. But once that came out, I was like, all right, it's hard to not justify doing it if essentially it's going to cost me out of pocket a few thousand dollars for books and administration fees and all that kind of stuff. I thought I should just do it. I don't think I'll ever use my MBA. But you knew how to read financial statements before. But learned how to do that on my own. I did not right. get my MBA and learn how to read financial statements. That was something that was self-taught. When I entered the MBA program, I was an investor at that point. And I had been investing for years, reading financial statements for years, thinking through business models for years. So a lot of the content that they talked about, I actually, I either disagreed with the way that they were speaking at it or knew myself, but I was interested in MBA for the network more than anything else. And that's what I wanted to get plus the credential. But there's a very valid argument that even though I have it, it's going to do me no good and was a waste of time and money. Well, you know what? I'm someone who learned how to read financial statements in detail, well, 10Ks, not just financial, yep. like 10Ks, really understand during the MBA program. It was like enlightening for me to understand these other nuances that I didn't know before. I can imagine just like you, there were some folks in my class who did not agree <laughs> with a lot of the stuff that the professors were saying. So it's like, ah, oh, no, not really. This yes. isn't it. Yeah. So in, when you're teaching folks in your cohort-based learning, do you give them those nuances or do you stay very high level on simplifying things for them? 
So we do both. We break it down so that you can learn them, assuming you start with zero education. So we define all the terms. We go over them in real time. We start with the simplest businesses that we can possibly think of to really get the concepts to sink in. And then we go deeper into them and we say, well, here's a number that's reported. This is important. Here's another that's reported. This is useless. Just ignore that. And we don't show people how to create financial statements, which is something that I learned in, when I was getting my MBA. We talked about debits and yep. credits and all that, of all that stuff, the manager. Uh, accounting. Right. So this accounting. isn't creating financial statements. This is finding, reading, and interpreting them. Okay. What was one of the biggest questions you had about the stock market when you started investing? My number one question by far, why does it go up? Which is why does the stock market go up? If you've ever seen that long-term chart of the Dow, of the yeah. NASDAQ, of the S&P 500, it is crystal clear what the long-term trend is. No doubt. There's no arguing that. The long-term trend of the last 150 plus years of the stock market has been up. The thing that never made sense to me is why? How is there this thing that magically just always goes up in value? Doesn't that defy the laws of what goes up must come down? And I understood intuitively. I think most people understand intuitively why the stock market goes down. When the stock market is going down, when it's in the news, there's something horrible going on in the world, right? There's something bad going on. Why is the stock market going down right now? Inflation at a 40-year high, war in Ukraine, supply chain challenges, right? Tons of public debt, tons of bad things going on, and the stock market's going down. That made sense to me and to many people, right? What never made sense to me is why did it go up in the first place? And why does it recover from downturns? That's the thing that totally confused me. And if you listen to any of the great investors or any of the great investing books, they all say the same. Stocks should be a core part of your portfolio. They're the engine that drives long-term returns. It returns on average an annual return of like 10% per year, right? That's the thing that is said over and over again. What never made sense to me is why that happens. Well, can you give us one reason that you learned about why? Yeah. The reason I wrote the book that I did was to essentially explain my favorite quote ever about investing. It was by a guy named Benjamin Graham, who taught Warren Buffett a lot of what he knows about investing. In fact, he was his teacher in college. He has this wonderful quote, which describes the stock market. In the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, the stock market is a weighing machine. I think most people intuitively understand the first part of that. The stock market is a voting machine right? If it's popular, prices go up. If it's unpopular, prices go down. If people are feeling optimistic, prices go up. If they're feeling pessimistic, prices go down. People understand that because they understand how auctions work naturally. What people don't understand is the weighing machine part of that, right? In the short term, the only thing that matters is sentiment. Are people feeling happy and optimistic? Prices go up. Are people feeling pessimistic? Prices go down. But what doesn't make any sense is that stock prices are actually linked 100% in the long run to the businesses that underlie it. And the stock market in the long run will follow what happens to those businesses' profits. If those businesses become more profitable over time, the stock market will go up. If those businesses become less profitable over time, the stock market will go down. So the goal of my book was to explain that link and why it's there and how it happens in the long term. Love it. 
tips, let's take a moment to thank our biggest sponsor of this podcast, TPM Focus, a strategy and execution consulting firm focused on generating revenue and finding product market fit for startups and small to medium-sized companies that are launching a new innovation or entering a new market. In a nutshell, if you're launching a new innovation or into a new market, we'll align your technology, marketing, sales, and customer success with your financial goals to ensure your company makes money while finding and solidifying your place in the market. Head over to tpmfocus.com to see testimonials and reach out if you'd like to work with us. So I want to know, since you've been at this for a while, if you can share like your experience during the dot-com crash. I was not an investor in the dot-com crash, but I was in college at the time. And just like everybody else, I was vaguely aware that the stock market had gone up tremendously in the late 90s, right? And 2000 came and then it'd been going down. And like everybody else in the world on September 11th, 2001, I was glued to CNN or whatever news was on. And as soon as the markets opened the next couple of days, I remember seeing red, right? Huge, down, negative, awful red. It made sense to me why markets were falling because of September 11th, right? Again, what didn't make sense to me is why they were up before that. And before I had an education about this, it's very natural to say, this is the fault of the president this is the fault of the terrorist organizations. It's easy to say, this is the fault of fill in the blank. What yeah. was not obvious to me at the time was that's how markets work. But markets declining precipitously on occasion is a perfectly natural and healthy way that markets actually function. So I did not have money in the markets at the time, but I remember observing them as an outside participant and saying, I remember them going up everyone was happy. Now they're going down. Everyone is sad. Looks like capitalism is done. We had a good run. <laughs> yeah. Game over. Right. <laughs> and then miraculously by 2007, all time highs again, yeah. all time highs again. Why, why, why did they recover? And then came what? 2008 <laughs> and the great recession. And it seemed like the great depression too was here. Banks were going under AIG was going under people were getting kicked out of their houses. The unemployment rate skyrocketed. It looked like a catastrophe economically. And what happened? The stock market bottomed in 2009. And then it went on one of its biggest bull market runs ever. Right? So massive crash followed by all-time highs, massive crash followed by all-time highs. It's so confusing when you see that happening and you don't understand what's going on. You know, it's cyclical. Folks will say, well, every 10 years, this is what we expect to happen. Have you found that to be true? Uh, if you look back at history, there does seem to be a relative cadence to how often markets decline. The numbers that I've seen are every year, every year, the stock market falls, peaks the trough about 10%. That's normal, 100% normal. Every four years, the stock market falls, peaks the trough about 20%. Every 10 years, peaks the trough about 30%. Every 25 years, peaks the trough about 40%. And then once or twice a century, peaks the trough 50 or 60%. That does seem to be the relative cadence of declines. But if you've looked over the last three years, we saw massive decline in March of 2020, peaked the trough 36% decline, something like that. It was over in one month. 
one yeah. month and it was over. The and pandemic. that is a boom unlike we've ever seen, followed by the last 18 months or so have been a massive washout that has remnants of like the 2000.com crash to it. So just in the last three years, due to everything we've experienced in the world, the volatility has been much higher, much higher than it normally has. So it doesn't line up perfectly with this is how often these things yeah. happen. Yeah. But yeah, it is normal for markets to get punched in the face every couple of years. Yeah. And it, it's like people really get a chance to see how all of these things, especially relative to the stock market, it's all interconnected with what's happening economically, what's happening internationally, like all of these things, what's happened politically, you know, during the time when we were going through the election cycle, everything is connected. We're all connected in some way. So one of the questions I have for you is, well, why, why, I know why, but why should the average person care about the stock market. Most people actually don't have money in it outside of their 401k. Yep. Well, if they have money in their 401k, if they, they shouldn't yeah. care about it, right? <laughs> they are in a very real way betting their financial future on the market. If that doesn't make you care about it, I don't know what will. The analogy that I like to use is the stock market is like a little league baseball game. It is impossible to get somebody to care about a little league baseball game. But the second their kid or grandkid is in the game, they really care about that baseball game. The stock market is the same way, right? If you don't have money in the market, why on earth would you care about it? It goes up, it goes down, there's news, good, bad, boom, bust, right? It looks like a random number generator. That's all it looks like, right? It goes up, down, up, down, up, down, down. But if you have money in the market, that's when you actually start to care about it. And the reason that I like the market so much is the stock market is the greatest wealth creation machine humans have ever devised. It is literally possible with the stock market to take an ordinary salary and continually invest in the stock market and generate extraordinary wealth. Just a few hundred dollars invested in the market for 30 or 40 years, so a working career, a few hundred dollars investing continually in the market and, re and reinvested can become millions. Multiple yeah. millions of dollars by the time you reach your retirement age. Name another thing that you can do that with, right? Name another thing where you can put in small amounts of money continually and out the other end come life-changing amounts of wealth. And it's natural for people to say, some people say, I'm not interested in money. I don't care about money. That's not a valid excuse in my opinion, because money affects every aspect of our lives, whether we want it to or not, right? Where you live. Where you send your kids to school, the education you receive, the healthcare you can access, the vacations you can go on, the quality of the water and the life experience you can have, all require money, period, end of story. So one of the best things you can do to make your life better is to increase your net worth over time. And I personally believe that the best way to do that is by investing in the stock market. Well, do you think people need a uh, financial advisor to be successful in investing in the stock market? Um, financial advisors, there are upsides and downsides to them. Nobody needs a financial advisor. Everybody that is listening to this is smart enough to learn how to become an investor, to understand the markets, and to set up a plan to do it themselves. However, just because you're smart enough to be able to doesn't mean you are going to. So I would say start with yourself. Are you interested in becoming your own financial advisor? Are you interested in studying markets? Are you interested in learning about how the market works? Are you interested in setting up your own plans? 
For plenty of people, the honest answer is no. They are not interested. If that is you, that is perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Then for those people, hiring a financial advisor makes total sense. Or if you're just the type of person that wants a second opinion on investing, somebody to bounce ideas off of, somebody to call if you're scared or excited. In those people, a financial advisor can make sense. So a lot of people that I know do hire financial advisors and good financial advisors can add real value to other people's lives, but they're not a requirement to do well. Most people I know are afraid to do stock picking on their own. 99% of people should not pick individual stocks. Yeah. 99% of people should not. We don't know what we're doing. We're not the experts in that. It's not because they're not smart enough. You just have to do fifth grade math. In fact, it's probably fourth grade math nowadays. It's addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. That's the only math you need to know to do well with investing in individual stocks. The reason people shouldn't invest in individual stocks is because people aren't interested to do the work necessary to do it well. If the idea of cracking open SEC filing bores you to tears, don't pick individual stocks, <laughs> right? I personally like investing. I personally enjoy digging into SEC filings, listening to conference calls, judging management teams, thinking through business models, tracking how companies are doing. I enjoy that. That is fun for me. But I'm in that weird 1% of people that that's fun for. If everything I just said sounds boring, like incredibly boring, incredibly dull, you wouldn't look forward to it. No problem. Don't pick individual stocks. <laughs> I love to read 10Ks. So I know that's weird. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> Very weird, but that's great. I learned so much about a company. But who should be involved in picking individual stocks then? If the average person shouldn't be, who should be? The only requirement, in my opinion, is those that are interested in doing it, period. People that literally are interested in doing that. To give you a sense of what I mean, I would rather listen to t Tesla's conference call than watch a Hollywood movie. Like Tesla's conference call to me is more fun than watching the next Iron Man or whatever. Like I just have tremendous fun keeping up with what that company particularly is doing and all the things that they have going on. That is something I very much look forward to doing. If that sounds crazy to you, just don't pick individual stocks. So earlier you had brought up previously how employees are saying no to the free money, you know, of a 401k, basically an employer match. Why? Yeah. So if you work for a company that offers a 401k, one thing that many companies are incentivized to do is to incentivize their workers to contribute to it by offering what's called an employee a match. So a very common one is like a 6%, 3% one, for example. Meaning if you contribute 6% of your salary to this 401k, we will contribute an extra 3% on top of that, AKA we'll match 50%. That's a common one. There's yeah. a bazillion different combinations of ones that are out there, but uh, the employer is essentially saying, we will, give you a, we will give you extra money to invest on your behalf for free. The sad news is about 20% of people that have access to a 401k with an employer match, don't do it which is the same thing as saying to your employer, I decline the raise you're giving. I, just, I don't want the free money that you're offering me. And if that sounds crazy, that's because it is, right? A 401k match is the closest thing to a no-brainer investment as you'll ever find, right? In that 6%, 3% case, that is a guaranteed 50% 
instant return on your money. Guaranteed 50% return. And it's a 3% raise. So if you make 50K a year and you don't do it, that's saying to your employer, I don't want $1,500. Yeah. So why do you think people do it? I'll just tell you real briefly from seeing the stories and stuff of, you know, people being publicly transparent with their situations. They're like, hey, you know, inflation, you know, gas prices are high. I can't afford to put that money away right now. I need to use it to live right now. Totally. It is. Yeah. I, so I, I that what you that, see? A, a combination of things. One, I think that people are not educated about what a 401k is. Again, if the if you know nothing about the stock market, except for it goes down on occasion, some people are not, their personality is not a fit for investing in the stock market. As, as awesome as I think the stock market is, the way that the stock market works is not a fit for their personality, right? If the idea of putting your money into the market and that money could be worth 20% less or 30% less over time, if that thought would make you lose sleep, stock market isn't for you. Yeah, <laughs> agree. Just, just period, right? For those people, bonds and CDs and cash, perhaps even real estate are better fits for their personality. So if that's you and you don't want to invest in your 401k, I guess that makes sense. Other people, especially those that are new to their careers, they need every dollar that they make in order to just fund the necessities of life, right? And it's very common for people to, especially when you're first starting out, their budget is so squeezed just from the cost of living that they don't have that extra to put in it. So I'm sure in that 20%, there are both of those cases, but still, I still think that uh, you should do everything in your power to capture that because that is literally like free money. Also, the other thing is, while let's say you have that 6%, 3%, thing I was just talking about, by contributing 6% of your, your paycheck to a 401k, that's reducing the amount of taxes that right. you have to pay. So yeah. it, it's a 6% hit to your pay, but the amount that you actually take home, it's less than a 6% hit to, to that. So it's not as big of a bite as people can do. And even if your budget is tight, still contribute 1%. Just the building the habit and getting that going is more important than anything else. Well, as we wrap up here, I want you to share with us some of your biggest investing mistakes. So I've made so many mistakes, so so many. And I'm not going to cheat and say, well, I didn't put it all on Amazon on day one or you know, any, anything like, like, like that. By and large, the biggest mistake that most people make with investing is they don't do it. Okay. They don't do it. In my case, I was naturally drawn to invest. As soon as I learned and understood what investing was, I was like, I'm in. I was fully committed to it, did everything I could to, to make more money so that I can invest more money. Like for me, I was just like a fish to water. I just like took to it. But I did make plenty of mistakes when I first started out. The biggest mistake that I made is I didn't properly educate myself about what investing was before I started doing it. I just started doing it. And I was buying things that I didn't understand and I was doing them for reasons that I that I thought were sound, but did not end up being sound. For example, I bought stocks that had 20% dividend yield because I thought they were safe investments. A dividend is like a cash payment that a company gives to you. And a 20% dividend yield, if that sounds too good to be true, that's because it is. <laughs> I did not understand that. Okay. I just thought I buy this thing. I earn a 20% return. That's great for me. I didn't understand that dividends are optional that dividends that high of a yield often don't get paid. They're not a guarantee. They are something that the company hopes to do. So I bought plenty of stocks that went down because I didn't understand what I was doing. But 
looking back, so many of the mistakes that I made made me the investor that I am today because nothing teaches you faster than getting punched in the face and losing a bunch of money, right? That, that has shaped the psyche that I have now about investing. So many of the mistakes that I made were very painful at the time, but I, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Well, that experience and your knowledge is now being used by at least hundreds of thousands of people, if not with a million, and I am one of them. I really appreciate the insights and things that you share on social media. Now, how can other people find you and engage with you? Sure. I'm on, I'm most active on Twitter. That's just my name at Brian Feraldi. I also have a free weekly newsletter that I send out and that's, you can sign up on Twitter or it's just mindset.brianferaldi.com. I just say one email a week of everlasting content that was created over the last 10 plus years that I think is something that is content that stands the test of time. So in some way, I just like to shine a light on the best things that I've found on the internet over the last 10 years that encourage you to think and act with a long-term mindset. So Brian, I want to thank you again for joining us today. And I hope to have you back soon. Everyone, I'm going to have the links to all of Brian's information, including his book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? And Brian, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now you have the option to text me any question that you have about your business, about career, and I will answer it on the show. So just go to unpolishedmba.com forward slash text. And from there, you'll be able to text anytime, any question, and I'll answer it on the air. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.